Hey, we want to welcome everybody to uh, the uh, Immigration Hour. Phil, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm your host, Charles Cook. I'm here with Phil Cook, uh, young immigration lawyer extraordinaire. Uh, and uh, it's great to be with you today. Uh, there is um, been a little bit since we've been on the air, since, since uh, mid-December. Um, last time there was some updates on uh, Senate Bill 386. But, of course, the Christmas holidays are always slow. And who wants to listen to an immigration podcast during Christmas, Phil? No one. No one. No, no, one. One, no one wants to listen to it. Uh, more focus on family uh, and church during that time. Uh, so uh, we, we, I wanted to get back to uh, legislation. First, Phil, Senate Bill 386. It looks like uh, there may be some movement uh, coming forward uh, from um, uh, Mike Lee to bring another unanimous consent motion to the floor. Um, lots of rumors on the rumor mill. Uh, I've gotten a number of uh, private messages on, on the Twitter machine uh, about this. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious... Um, um, you know what is uh, what is really going to happen? The um, uh, one of the uh, uh, folks that uh, communicates with me on secret Twitter message machine um, said that one of the leading proponents of this bill initially was telling their people to continually hound Durbin and demand that Durbin fight with Lee to pass the bill. Um, keeping in mind that uh, Durbin's not interested in passing the bill. Uh, Durbin was interested in making sure if the bill does pass, that it's not terrible. Right. Um, and that's a different thing. Uh, and apparently they just called the dogs off of Durbin. And uh, I think they realized that there may be other senators who are concerned now that they have time, have had time to consider what Senate Bill 386 actually does and what it actually means going forward, even with the Durbin amendments. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, the unanimous consent uh, vote that's coming up, the, even though Dick Durbin kind of put the things that he wants in the bill to mm -hmm. see it get passed, um, I think even w with the new amendments now, like you said, some senators are a little bit more hesitant to uh, sign on to that, including some uh, uh, senators on, that were originally on Mike Lee's side. I believe there there were reports from uh, a senator out in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. um, that would be who, Senator Rounds, yeah, who had who who's going to have con some concern about about it. Possibly not good concerns, but <laughs> well, you know, I don't think it was necessarily Durbin's amendment. I think what Durbin did um, was simply point out that the bill had some serious issues, and that when you're dealing with a bill that radically, and this bill radically changes the structure of legal immigration to the United States, right for the next generation, uh, that you probably should have a hearing on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, there, there are, of course, ways to accomplish what this bill accomplished without doing it through this bill mm -hmm. uh, in much more effective ways uh, and in much uh, more fair ways. Um, you know, it's funny because one of the reasons why folks are saying that th it's this bill or nothing is that they believe that Congress simply will not increase any legal immigration numbers. And we're going to get into why I think they are willing to increase numbers um, going forward, but we cannot uh, uh, negotiate uh, an issue away um, simply by believing somebody in Congress wouldn't agree with us. The, the funny thing is that uh, a lot of times on the Twitter you see people saying that, well, uh, pass this and then we'll worry about uh, increasing numbers later and that what you just said just undermines that argument 
um, because um, if if they are if they aren't willing to pass numbers later, mm-hmm. um, then uh, this bill, which is going to be the only bill that uh, amends uh, immigration, our immigration system on a large scale, is going to be an inherently unfair to the rest of the world that it does not. That it, that it treats unfairly. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, there is actually a growing movement that uh, that I've just caught wind of. Uh, now, of course, you have to separate out opponents of this bill. There are good faith opponents. I think we are good faith had been good faith opponents of this bill with Durbin because I think he had I think he did an effective job of fixing the bill in ways that are very very helpful. But there are opponents to this bill that are simply anti-immigrant. Right. I mean, that, and we're not aligning. I'm not aligning myself with those people. Well, it's the same people. It was the same thing. No, it's not. I mean, it's not. No. But at the same time, um, there is a growing movement that's really refocusing on the H-1B and the proper uses of the H-1B. When I started practicing immigration law 30 years ago, uh, the H-1B was, had been around, of course, before, long before then, but it had just been revamped in 1990 a year after I started practicing. Uh, and it was really designed to not, not, it wasn't designed to bring the best and the brightest. This idea that the H-1B is only for the best and the brightest, that's not true. Uh, the bill was real. The, the visa itself is to enable American employers to get the best qualified person for a job, even if that person um, was from, from abroad. And it, the, the reason it did not include any labor protections was intentional. We intentionally didn't include that because it wanted employers to be able to get the best person. Now, it was temporary, however. It was only six years. And if you wanted to keep that person under the 1990 bill, you had to go through the process to get them a green card and show there were no qualified U.S. workers. Well, various revisions over the years allowed the H-1B to become essentially permanent if you begin the green card process. Uh, and the, the reality is that a lot of the jobs that H-1B workers began filling uh, were filled because Americans weren't training for those jobs. But now, in 2020, there are you know, a core group of major employers in America uh, whose basically sole business model is the H-1B. It's to bring H-1B workers. And they right. use that H-1B model to, uh, in, in the words of some people, to keep costs down for people. Mm-hmm. Because if you keep replenishing the H-1B pool with new entry-level workers, you keep paying the low wages. Uh, and when you fire or get rid of an H-1B worker, or an H-1B worker actually transfers because of the skill set they learned on the job in the United States to a better full-time U.S. employer, uh, they just replenish the pool with entry-level workers from abroad. So there is a growing movement um, to, and, I, and it wouldn't shock me, to see somebody try to add this on to uh, Senate Bill 386 uh, to say that there is a cap on the number of H-1B visas that a U.S. employer could have, not just a percentage cap, but an overall cap on the number of H-1B workers. And that would see some strong opposition from those companies. Yeah, and, and, and so you're, you're, you're girding for a big fight here uh, because as long as one country dominates the H-1B visa, uh, what you're going to have and it's not because that country is the sole country in the world sending out qualified workers. Lots of countries have qualified workers. It's just that the business model is focused there right now. Uh, that business model can focus in a lot of different countries, ultimately, and, and very well may going forward. Um, at the same time, you have, unfortunately, people, human beings, caught within the trap of the backlog. Right. 
Uh, now, some of them knew about the backlog and jumped anyway. Many did not uh, truly understand how the backlog worked until, until you know, they, until now. They were like, oh, my God, now I've got a 15 to 25 to 150-year wait for a green card. I didn't really understand what that meant. We have to do something about them. The, the simple solution for that, of course, to is to simply increase numbers. numbers. I mean, that's just right. – that, so uh, is Congress ready for that? I, I think they are. Uh, there were increased numbers in 2013. They got 67 votes in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there, there is a movement. The question is whether people are willing to settle now and rob Peter to pay Paul right. or whether they are actually uh, want to fix the actual system so we can stop having to play this game uh, going forward. Well, I think the uh, important thing for listeners to keep in mind is that um, what we're doing here is debate, right? It's, it's not us um, believing that people who are stuck in this backlog uh, deserve to be there. We don't believe that. We believe that these people who've been waiting and who will have to wait a long time, you know, they deserve to get these green cards that they're waiting for. It's just we have to go about it in the right way. You know, so it's really interesting to take a look at, you know, what what are uh, the number, the, who are the big companies using H-1Bs that are feeding this backlog? Um, now, for uh, fiscal year 2019, let's take a look now, what's interesting about this is their immigration itself uh, doesn't necessarily always report the H-1B workers, um, but the Department of Labor uh, actually reports who uses LCAs. Now, the problem with LCAs, as everyone H-1B worker knows, is you could be one worker and have 10 or 15 H-1Bs because you're going around to different work sites. So it's not really a true indicator of how many H-1Bs there are, but it is it is an indicator, kind of a leading indicator of who's using H-1Bs. So just not exactly how many. So the number one user in 2019 of uh, H-1Bs was Deloitte, uh, but not necessarily the number of H-1Bs, but the number, and what is Deloitte, Phil? It is a consulting company, right? Same with a lot of these So, so it's a consulting company, and they had 16,400 LCAs. Right. Unclear about how many H-1Bs there were, and the average wage for those H-1Bs well, and LCAs was $82,000. The next three big users, Tata, Cognizant, and Infosys, are all based in India. They're, in, they're multinational companies out of India, and they use 14, 13, and 11, and their average wage was eighty-two dollars to $84,000. Uh, the next number five user was IBM, you know, the international business, the quintessential American company. Uh, they had 8,000, so they had less than half. So the top three are at all five digits. Then you get into the six to four digits. But IBM's numbers was $100,000 was the average. But interesting, number six was Ernst & Young, E&Y. Mm-hmm. Their average salary was $117,000. So clearly, if you're working for Deloitte, you're being grossly underpaid. Yeah. By like $30,000, $35,000. Get a different job. Uh, I think they're taking advantage of you. Capgemini is after that, another one of the big four. Google, uh, got Tech Mahindra, which is another. So four of the top ten companies are, in fact, um, in India. based in India. Four of the, four, the, other, the other six are all consultant companies. Right. So, these are, so the H-1B was initially designed to get the U.S. employer – the uh, the accounting firm, the uh, the business firm, uh, the law firm, uh, the engineering company, the hospital, to get that one person, two people, ten people they needed. 
It wasn't, it's just, and, and the volume is clear, 65,000 a year. It wasn't designed to bring in consultants. And yet we live, I mean, the economy changed. So what the visa was designed for, it can no longer do. So perhaps there should be two different, maybe there should be an H-1B and an H-1D. Because H-1C is taken, by the way. Nobody gets them anymore, but it's in nurses. Uh, so H-1B would be for workers that aren't consultants, and an H-1D would be for consultings, consulting visas. And there would be different grounds for each one of those two visas. So you can create more workers and more visas. I mean, this idea that we're stuck with the visas we have is simply not thinking outside the box and not being realistic. If you say, look, we're going to make H-1Bs just for uh, employees of companies that aren't consultants. We will have a separate visa category for consulting companies, and here's the rules that go along with that. And they're stringent, they're difficult, uh, maybe they require uh, um, proof of uh, not replacing U.S. workers, maybe they require proof of uh, advertising, uh, but they are, I think, really important uh, in trying to bring about uh, a change that works for everybody here. Now, if you dig down to the top 12, you also add Wipro and Amazon.com services. You know, these are, if you really go back to 1990, the only companies here that existed were Deloitte, uh, IBM, uh, Capgemini, which was another one of the previous uh, PwC people, and Accenture. They, the rest of these are, you know, they're all new, right? They're all new since 1990. So it's, it's quite clear the visas did not, I mean, heck, Walmart is a top 25 user. Walmart. But Think only about with that. A thousand. Uh, no, 1600. Oh, 1600. 1600. But walk at this Walmart's average wage is 116. Yeah. 116. Those, yeah, so it's in a top five wage yeah. for these H1Bs. The highest wage of ever, any H1B employer is a company called K Force. Uh, and the second is Amazon. No, 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 Apple. Apple. Oh, Apple is Apple. Apple. Oh, oh, Apple, 145. So <laughs> clearly, an Apple's uh, Apple's an outlier here. Or no, uh, Facebook too. Facebook, Facebook 157. 157. Wow, you know, so Facebook nobody's getting Apple paid. You when you got lots right? of money, you just <laughs> give it away. Let's take our first break here on the immigration. I'll be right back with more, more data and more information. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. It's uh, your host, Chuck Cook. Uh, i got our co-host here today, Phil Cook. Uh, yes, we are related. Yes. Uh, we both spell our name correctly. That's right. How else would you spell <laughs> Cook? K-U-C-K, that's right. So I, I, I do predict there'll be a vote on uh, Senate Bill 386. Um, don't know if it'll be this week, but uh, clearly Mike Lee is gearing up for it. I doubt it'll be this week. Uh, if it will, it'll be late in the week, Thursday. I remember Monday's a federal holiday. Right. So uh, they tend to leave town early on federal holiday weekends, so don't expect anything on Friday. Plus, they have the uh, whole issue of the uh, impeachment, which That's is right. going to come to a head maybe maybe this week. They might be having a vote. So, soon. I mean, all these things play in, come into play on Senate Bill 386. All right, next thing I want to talk about today, Phil, uh, was the Liberian amnesty. And you're going, what Liberian amnesty? <laughs> well, there actually was an amnesty that just passed Congress. Surprisingly. Uh, and signed by the president uh, with his permission for Liberians. Wait a second. How did that happen? Uh, Liberia was a country at civil war in the 1990s, uh, and we're one of the very first countries to receive TPS, Temporary Protected Status. But maybe a decade ago uh, or, or late or mass more, uh, Liberia began to come out of the civil war, democracy changed, and TPS basically ended. And really, for a very long time, many 
uh, people on TPS from Liberia, about four, four to 5,000, uh, have been getting what's called DED, Deferred and Forced Departure, which is basically, like right. uh, you know, we'll let you stay, but you're not really have TPS, but you have a work permit, so it's kind of the same thing effectively. Um, and, and unbeknownst to really anybody in the know, uh, other than a few select people, uh, this small group was able to get a bill, get, get a provision put into the Defense Appropriations Act that basically gives anybody from Liberia who's been here since 2014, even if they never had TPS, a green card. Boom. And they can apply starting December 20th. They have a year to apply. Um, basically, just, uh, other than uh, no felony, no more than two misdemeanors. Have to already be here, too. And have to be here by as of 2014. Right. You get a green card. Yeah. Just bam, just like that. Great. You know, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And kudos to them. Kudos to the people that made this happen, that snuck this in under the very noses of the folks that are watching this carefully uh, on, on every bill that passes. Now I have a question about it. Yes. Does it, does it cut into numbers, into green card numbers? Nope. It's just a laid on top, extra numbers for Liberians. Um, now think about this. There are about 300,000 TPS holders from El Salvador and Honduras that have been here almost as long as the Liberians. So what's the difference? Why treat them differently? The difference is they just they didn't have anyone go to You know, for them, th think really. about this. This is this is actually really quite powerful. Um, if in fact we are interested in doing right by people who have done right by us and nobody has done more right than TPS holders. I mean they've reported every year, every year, they renewed every 18 months, they, they work, they pay their taxes, they own homes, they own businesses, they're employees, they're employers. It's, it's stupid to say, go back to these countries that are, that are failing. Mm -hmm. Go back to these countries where, you know, basically you have almost nobody left, distant relatives. Um, just give them green cards. So I, should, I think the Liberian uh, bill is a harbinger not of death, but a, a good news harbinger of what we can do when we rationally talk about the options that are available out there to people. It also sets um, kind of a precedent as well. Absolutely. So that they can then, <clears throat> these groups of people can uh, then go to their senators and their representatives in Congress um, and ask for equal treatment. And if there's if there's a blowback from any senators, you can say, well, you did it for these other people. Yep. Why not us? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. So, uh, I, But so far, it's been interesting. I haven't heard any of the national organizations that really focus on TPS holders say anything. No, we're doing a lot of work with TPS holders, getting them green cards for their employer. They don't want to draw too much backlash. That could be. It could be. Uh, but I'm telling you, I think there's a there's now a precedent. Uh, there's a reason and a rationale. Uh, there is uh, a way forward. There's a model. So why aren't we doing it? And why this speaks for DACA kids too. You can always talk to your congressman. <laughs> you know, uh, but I I think that um, if we did it for Liberians, uh, it becomes problematic when we don't do it for other people. I agree. Uh, now, I don't think it'll pass this year, of course. Election year is very time. But this is the kind of thing that could pass in a lame duck session after an election. Yeah. Trump wins or loses. Um, this is the kind of thing where you can just 
sneak it in in an appropriations. But that's where most of the good immigration legislation has passed. Uh, the amnesty in 1986. I mean, this is what happened then. Um, so this is something we actually need to keep our legislative eyebrows up for this year. We need to be talking about. I'll be going to D.C. on March 5th to do a little bit of lobbying uh, with uh, my new con- my new senator, Senator Leffler, um, and uh, my congressman, Lucy McBath, to see what we can't shake loose on this. Yeah. It's interesting. Now, one thing happened over the last couple of weeks, a truly bizarre tweet on the 14th. Okay, the 14th was Saturday or Sunday? I can't recall. Uh, Saturday, right? Truly bizarre tweet from President Donald Trump, who said this, quote, H-1B holders in the United States can rest assured that changes are soon coming, which will bring both simplicity and certainty to your stay, including a potential path to citizenship. Close quote. And then, quote, we want to encourage talented and highly skilled people to pursue career options in the United States. Close quote. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> well, I think you said it best is that he clearly did not write this. No, no well, first of all, it's coherent. <laughs> it's, there's no misspellings. And, uh, but why would the president float this? Um, this... Lobbyists, maybe? Uh, you know, why would somebody on the staff float this? Um, um, you know, the thing is, every H-1B holder already has a path to right. residence. Right. I mean, maybe he meant DACA holders. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, you would hope so. Maybe he <laughs> meant DACA. Maybe he got. Maybe they got confused. H-1B holders already have a pathway to green. In fact, S-386 makes that a lot harder. So if, in fact, he's talking about S-386, it's the exact opposite of what he's talking about. Right. Um, so, uh, I, it's unclear. Well, uh, Stuart, Stuart Anderson, uh, who writes in Forbes, said this. Some believe Trump may have bre- recently been briefed on the proposed regulation to change the order of the H-1B lottery, which, of course, would have no effect on green card holders. I mean... I am unconvinced he even knows what an H-1B is, honestly. Except I do know what I do know that he knows what it is, because that's how he got all his models at the <laughs> Trump Modeling Agency, and and of course uh, Melania had an H-1B visa as a model. So he must know. So I, he knows what they are, but maybe he just thinks. I not know how they work. Well, if he's if if you think he's talking about models, um, here, models can rest assured that changes are soon coming, which will both bring simplicity and certainty to your stay. That makes a lot maybe, more maybe sense. Maybe a lot more sense than makes H-1Bs? I don't know. Um, uh, so Stewart said this, he may also be responding, at least rhetorically, to entreaties from business leaders concerned about the direction of U.S. immigration policy under his administration. Um, there's, of course, no evidence that Trump administration is changing any policy on H-1Bs. They, will, they are rewriting what specialty occupation means to make it harder to get an H-1B. Right, and they are. And so that's the complete opposite of what he's talking yeah, about. Their enforcement when, you're, when companies are asking for H-1B extensions uh, is to now deny people their extensions for the same, uh, for the same jobs that they were being granted before. You know, it's interesting because Stevie Lair, a good friend of mine, um, said this. Um, uh, 
This tweet runs counter to what the administration has actually done against H-1B workers. It's made it harder for U.S. employers to keep them. Right. So it's, you know, and in that context, it is consistent with the things Trump says. They're lies. You can actually, what Nancy Pelosi said, you can actually take the exact opposite of what he says, yeah. and that's the truth. Yeah. Um, and so it's, um, uh, it's crazy. Uh, it's actually crazy. I, I just think the tweet, when I read it, I was like, oh, come on, that's got to be from a fake account. Yeah. Uh, that's not from Donald Trump's account. But, of course, uh, the, 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 the folks that hate immigrants were all over this. Uh, the folks from the Center for Immigration Studies um, uh, is uh, uh, apocalyptic about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said the tweet is a kick in the teeth to the H-1B replaced American workers who campaigned with Trump and his rallies. And uh, John Miano said this, to begin with, the treat is nonsensical. As we pointed out, H-1B workers already have bad to residence and citizenship. Um, so uh, the Indian press said this, they, created, they credit a local actor for Trump's tweet. Um, uh, so this is what Miano says, I concur with Lou Dobbs, and this represents yet another Trump staffing failure. Uh, so, you know, they're just saying it's, it's simply not true. Um, uh, it is, uh, uh, it is fascinating, uh, that this came out. Yeah. It's a bizarre tweet, but I felt it worthy of talking about in our, in our, in our, uh, podcast because it is so truly bizarre, um, so truly bizarre that like probably like many of his tweets, and you know, there's a tweet for everything. Yeah. Like many of his tweets, it'll just go down and, and put it in the history books, and we'll say, you know, he said the exact opposite four years ago, and here's the tweet from that. <laughs> right. Uh, from that. Um, now, the last thing I want to talk about on today's show, because we're trying to keep these podcasts about 30 minutes, we don't want to overwhelm anybody with an hour long podcast mm. anymore. Um, and that's something, Phil, you worked for the Cato Institute. I did. And, um, Cato has done, of course, remarkable work on immigration. Alex Narasta, David Beer, uh, just remarkable work on a lot of immigration issues. Um, and uh, the, the recent news came out that the there has been essentially no population growth uh, in the United States over the last decade. Right. Right. Um, what does that mean from an immigration from a, from an economic perspective? From an economic perspective, I believe it means that although uh, you'll see unemployment rates, uh, you know, be become better, um, you're ultimately not going to see the same uh, amount of economic growth. Why is that? Why why doesn't the economy grow if, if unless the population grows? Well, because uh, you're not going to be seeing as many uh, chances to expand uh, businesses. You're not going to see as many chances to expand uh, your workforce. Um, so uh, generally, the you know the less you allow capitalism to work, the less that uh, you're going to see the economy growing. And capitalism depends on supply and demand right. as a basic function of society. When you control population growth um, and uh, intentionally, and you slow it down, what happens to your economy? It's going to decline. Well, let's look at China. China's a great example. Yeah. So China intentionally slowed its population growth about. Uh, 30 years ago, yeah. with the one-child, one-family policy. Now, Phil's been to China. He's a Chinophile, Sinophile. He understands China. Yeah, um, big Chinese. Big Chinese, certainly. <laughs> um, so what is – did China prosper because of the one-child, one-family policy, maybe initially? or And then they realize now, oh, my God, we have all these old people, 
and we have no young people. China is interesting uh, because it's actually uh, controlling how it does based on how it deflates its own uh, the value of its currency. Right. Um, as far as population goes, uh, yeah, they're running into the same thing that I think that we're going to run into with a large boomer population. Um, is there ha- they have a, a very large older population because their children, uh, everyone only has one child. So right. how are they going to take care? I mean, they think about starting thirty years ago, everybody only had one child. Um, in fact, you you know you're seeing a lot of uh, you're seeing a lot of. Um, uh, people bring in spouses from <clears throat> outside of the country because they just can't find anyone either. Well, there was also the problem, population. of course, with selective abortion. Exactly, is that only only guy only boys were born. That's right. So you're bringing in wives from Thailand, from Vietnam, um, sometimes dubiously, but um, and there there were I saw estimates of maybe there's 50 million, 100 million more men than women in China. Yeah, that's absolutely some crazy true. number like that. That's absolutely true. Um, so yeah, but they they have relaxed their one child policy right. now. So well, uh, because they realize what a bad idea it is. It was a bad idea, and uh, so what we're gonna probably see in the coming generations, uh, you know, as as long as uh, Xi Jinping backs off of his um, what I see as uh, restrictive economic policies, I believe you'll see some growth there. So now Japan is another prime example. Japan didn't have an official policy on population growth, they just stopped having babies. Yeah. And they literally are shrinking. Their, their population is actually shrinking. Towns and cities are disappearing in Japan. And uh, that's been going on for the last 40 years. And as a result, they literally have, a, have had a stagnant economy. They have not seen any a functional, real economic growth in a generation. Right. Uh, and do we face that in America if this continues? I believe we do. Um, uh, you know, immigration is, if, in fact, if you back out immigration from our population growth, you don't have any population growth for the last negative. 30 years. No. We have negative growth. Yeah. Uh, we're just not birthing enough babies. Right. So immigration um, is essential to, to our changing economy and our growing economy. Um, uh, we now have 328.2 million people in America. Uh, Japan has 126 million. It's actually getting smaller. Uh, those are interesting numbers. Um, so America only grew um, by uh, 595,000 people last last year. Last decade? Last year. Last year. year. And yet we immigrated 1.2 million people. Mm -hmm. People actually leave them. People do leave America, and people don't realize that. People do leave America. There's millions of Americans living in Mexico, for example. Um, So when you have uh, that type of focus... How, how do you either promote people to stay, promote babies, or better, how can immigration play a functional role in that? Um, well, I think that um, immigration will, <clears throat> in, in terms of population growth, right? Um, well, obviously, you know, the more immigration you have, I, th- I think that immigrants are coming to the United States, they're more likely to have larger families um, because of where they come from, because of culture, uh-huh. and that they're going to f- effectively uh, increase our population. Some people are afraid of that, um, but I don't think it's founded. Now, uh, at least one, uh, one reporter from the New York Times felt uh, that the U.S. population growth has slowed in the last, really since 2015, but more effectively since 2017, and that's because Trump's approach to immigration. Right. 
they are clearly intentionally slowing down immigration. Now, it's funny because they announced uh, that they naturalized a record number of people last year. Mm-hmm. What they didn't announce is they had a record number of backlogs. Right. Is they're, they're falling further behind on both green cards and permanent residence and citizenship. And they're seeing more uh, federal action because of this. Yeah, backlogs. they're seeing that. And what, what, they're, what they're seeing, though, more importantly, is the consequence of bad immigration policy, which Trump's is bad immigration policy, Congress's fault too, but really Trump's fault by by slowing down the mechanisms of immigration, uh, making it impossible to immigrate from some countries, for example, making it more difficult from some countries, and once you're here, making the whole process much more difficult. Uh, it's not because he's deporting more people, because he's deporting fewer people than Obama did. Um, I mean, that's part of the population decline you saw under Obama is not decline, but we deported more people. That's not, I mean, Trump's deporting them, but not at at Obama's numbers. But what you're really seeing here as as a result uh, is um, um, something that hasn't happened, as David Beer pointed out from Cato, Mm -hmm. since the Great Depression. Right. Um, So, I mean, I I think this is something we actually need to be cognizant of. Um, Maybe we should all be making more babies. Uh, but I think uh, absent, you know, you know, the problem is Phil. Phil just had his third child, his first yeah. son. Uh, it's expensive to have babies, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, and you look forward to say, what about college? What about retirement one day? How am I going to afford that? Uh, in an economy where it makes it very, very difficult to have a stay-at-home mom, um, where it makes it very difficult to have a family. And it has become more expensive over right. time, which right. I think a lot of people don't really understand. No, I don't think. I think most people that are boomers. Right have this idea that things have continued the same. Well, it was fine. And it's not. It's not. It's way more expensive today to have children and to raise those children than it ever has been before. Right. Uh, and uh, because our economy and wage growth has not continued at the rate it was in the 70s when most boomers came of age, I mean, oh, every year I'll get more money, and every year I'll make more money, and I'll just be fine and everything, and, and I'll keep ahead of inflation. That hasn't happened in 25 years. Right. I mean, and, and the minimum wage, which the GOP has fought against forever, uh, is effect, you know, controls that. I mean, right. the reality is if minimum wage stays at 725, all the other wages are tied to that in some way or another. You know, I think in, uh, in the next uh, decade or so, we're really going to see uh, the effect of uh, the, these nativist policies on our economy. Im- immigrants and uh, our economic growth are so causatively, rather than quarter- just merely quarterly, uh, intertwined that um, I think we're really going to regret our actions. Oh, I, I think there's a long-term hyper-negative effect to all of this uh, that is going to be to our long-term detriment. On that happy note, Phil, we're going to conclude this week's Immigration <laughs> Hour. Uh, if anybody has any questions or comments, you can reach us. Uh, I'm at uh, uh, ccook at immigration.net. Phil's at pcook, uh, K-U-C-K, spelled correctly, of course, right. at immigration.net. You can also catch us up on uh, Facebook or Twitter, the Twitter machine. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you are, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's just my name, Philip. At Philip Cook. Okay, I am at C, C Cook, at C-K-U-C-K. Uh, welcome all our followers there. We do put lots of tweets out. And on Facebook, of course, we're there and LinkedIn. Yeah. Till next week, this is your host, Chuck Cook, and your co-host, Phil Cook, here on the Immigration Hour.